0: Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest round. The message entitled today is, God Wants Our Hearts. And once again, I'll read the text of Mark twelve thirty. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, and with all your souls, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This morning I would like to suggest that too often man misunderstands God's de- desired relationship with Him. It's easy to say simply that God wants our obedience. And that's true. God does want our obedience. But it is so much more. God wants our hearts. He wants the essence of who we are. He wants the sum total of who we are. We can be obedient. We can follow rules. We can do what we're told. And still our hearts can be far from God. And more, if obedience is all we have, If God does not have our hearts in time, that will end as well. Because it is a heart matter. And still let us consider obedience this morning. Saul, the very first king of Israel, was commanded by God to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I love God's word. I love the Old Testament. And this story, this historical event, is hard for me. God does not look at life the way we look at life. We think, because we believe in such things, that a baby in the womb ought to be brought to life and not killed. That is important. And and we would be correct in that. And we take that desire for life from God. And yet, because the Amalekites were the enemies of His people, doing harm to His people, He said, You shall now go and destroy this people. You shall not let any person live. Think on that. Not man, not woman, not child, not any animal. Nothing of substance shall survive. Every piece of goods, no matter how precious and valuable, utterly destroyed. It should be left as scorched earth, burnt. Nothing recognizable is essentially what God was telling them. Saul was given these instructions. They were not confusing to him. They were not hard to understand. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 15.3, Saul was told, "Utterly to destroy all that they have and do not spare them. King Saul, however, decided to follow his own reasoning rather than to listen to Yahweh God. Uh, another bit of housekeeping for you. When I read the name The Lord, which you find in your Bibles in English in all caps, that is the name of God in the Hebrew language, which the Hebrew people stopped using because they didn't want to take his Lord's, the Lord's name in vain. So they started saying The Lord rather than His covenant name, Yahweh. So you will hear me read Yahweh in the Old Testament. He decided to follow his own reasoning, rather than to listen to the voice of Yahweh God. Listen to First Samuel fifteen nine. It says this, But Saul and the people spared a gag, that's the king, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling. Please just stop right there. Unwilling. Not uncertain. Unwilling utterly destroyed them. But everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. 1 Samuel 15.9 They decided who was worthless but kept everything that was of value and could be given to God in sacrifice. This was the decision that they made at the leading of Saul Saul had not been king very long at all. And he's already disobeyed a very specific, clear command from God the Father. After this disobedience, Saul goes to Carmel to build for himself a monument. That takes a lot of nerve. I want you to understand something. I made a mistake in my last teaching of this. You weren't there, so you don't know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The Arc de Triomphe in Paris, France. In my mind, that was built by the Romans. Wrong. Built by, built by the French. That was their own beautiful arch. But they built it after the manner, after the design of the Ark of Titus in Rome, which was built in honor of the Romans' defeat of the Jewish people in the First Roman-Jewish War. It was common for conquering armies, generals, the the, the leaders of you know the, the emperors of Rome and such, when they had taken over an area to build a monument or to win a battle, maybe even not a large battle, but some generals gotta get their their fifteen minutes of fame, and they build these monuments to themselves what Saul was doing was not unlike this. He had gone and had his battle, his first battle really as king of consequence, not to the pleasing of God, but nonetheless he did this, and he builds for himself a monument to Saul. His heart is far from God. I want you to hear... Saul's defense to the prophet Samuel. He says, But I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh and gone on the mission on which Yahweh sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Wait, full stop. I kept Agag alive. But I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Two statements that do not work. In unison, but the people, oh, don't you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? And Adam, like, it was the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Saul has taken notes from this event because he says the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. Except I did keep a gag alive, of course. He led by example. They didn't do anything that Saul wasn't leading in. But I want you to hear the last thing he says to Samuel. It is heartbreaking. The best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to your God. In Gilgal. King of Israel. This was done. Samuel. To honor. Your God. Not my God. Not our God. Saul's heart. Was far from God. He had already separated himself. Sin does that. He had already separated himself out. This was Samuel's God. That defense is found in 1 Samuel 15, 20 and 21. Samuel makes the issue plain when he says, Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams, 1 Samuel 15:22. It's a heart issue. It's a matter of the heart. The Israelites of the first century, in fact, were no different than Samuel. than Saul, pardon me. much different than Samuel. but no different than Saul. They often went their own way with, while claiming that they were doing it in the service of God. Jesus exposes them by quoting the prophet Isaiah, saying this, Hypocrites, well does Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 7 through 9 is that text. I want you to listen to the larger passage from which Jesus quotes. It's found in Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 17. And it says this Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those, he continues, who seek seek deep to hide their... I'll try that again. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from Yahweh, and their works are in the dark. They say... Who sees us? And who knows us? Surely you had things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as a clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? I have another lesson about the house of the potter. Jeremiah says, I don't have the words. They said, so, well, I'm going to send you to the potter's house. I want you to learn. And Jeremiah sees the example of a potter taking the clay on the wheel. And when it is not forming as it should, he destroys it to start over again. And God tells Jeremiah, I can do the same thing with Israel. And we see it. And Isaiah talks about the same principle here. But the same questions essentially are asked. It's like, how do we speak to the Creator this way? How do we consider that God does not see, that He does not know us? We do nothing in secret, though we may try. We do nothing in secret, there is nothing He does not see. That's why when he says, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from Yahweh. A. It's impossible. B. It is incredibly ill-advised. He is our loving Father, who purposes to give us everything for our faith and for our life, in every way we are sustained by Him who created us, who formed us. He deserves our heart and everything. We discover in the verses that we read here in Isaiah, in, in, in quotation from Isaiah from Matthew, that God sees man and his habit of turning away from him in his heart. When we willfully sin, we may not realize it, but we are saying in our hearts one of a few things. We are saying, potentially, God does not matter. When we make decisions and don't misunderstand, I'm not talking about a mistake. I'm not saying I'm not talking about an error where we have stumbled into sin, unaware, which can happen, but not as often as we make decisions to turn from God in a moment of our own physical desire. When we decide to turn away from God in decision, it may very well be, or we are saying in our own hearts and minds, you know what? God doesn't really matter. Or perhaps we have convinced ourselves God does not see. Or maybe as the as Saul We even fool ourselves. And even as these first century Jews, and so many people we know even today, we fool ourselves into believing that God actually approves. Saul was guilty of convincing himself that God approved of what he had done. How is this possible that we can convince ourselves of something like that? Well, the answer is found in the heart. Now, I, 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 I grab my hands and point at the, the pump in the middle of my chest, but that's not what the heart is in Scripture. This is the heart. The mind is the heart of man. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not... Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thief does not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question we have to ask ourselves, and it is my Commitment as a teacher of God's Word to always try to bring this to where we can use it in our own lives. I, I like to, to study in- interesting things and give you charts and stuff on the board, but I want you to be able to use it. And so today, the question we have to ask ourselves is where is our treasure? Jesus teaches that if we want to know the desires of the heart, find one's treasure. In Matthew 13, 44-46, Jesus speaks to this idea more when He gives two short parables. He says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We will go to extreme measures to acquire something that we want. One of those things, in fact, the first thing that we ought to put At that level of commitment is to serve God. We have to want to serve God that everything else gets laid to destruction if need be so that He is first. Always. When God is at the center of our lives, it is evident in our choices. It's also evident when He's not at the center of our lives. But if if he is at the center, people can see it. I was telling, I'm giving you a catalog of all my lessons apparently now, but I was telling Michael this, uh, yesterday that I have a message I wrote that I kind of want to rewrite and do some work one, but it's, is that the question is, it's entitled, A Convicted Christian. Could we, conv- could we can be convicted of, by our peers as, as a Christian, or would we be acquitted on reasonable doubt? Well, our choices will tell God, our brethren and the world whom we serve. The fruit, right, of our lives. When the desires, fills, fears and troubles of this world are the driving forces in our lives, we have to ask ourselves why. Why are the external influences Why do they have so much pull over us? Why do they allow us to sometimes make decisions that are clearly wrong and against God's will? Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 15, 5 something that is hard to hear. He says, examine yourselves. I'm I'm happy to stop in right there and, and I'm comfortable. I'm like, okay, examine myself. I'm with you, Paul. I'm totally with you. But he doesn't stop there. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. That's talking to us. That's not pointing fingers at people out in the world and say, well, they, don't, they, they say they're Christians, but... No, it's us. We have to examine ourselves as to whether or not we're in the faith. He continues, do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? And then here it is unless indeed you are disqualified. God does not give us anything in Scripture that does not apply to us. That is not a throwaway, that's for somebody else, sentence. That's for us to examine where our heart is. Paul's instructions, indeed, are difficult to hear. In essence, he's asking us where our treasure is. Where are our hearts? In the ancient days before God destroyed the world by water, He looked at His creation. In Genesis 6-5 we are told that He said, He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and the every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I look out at our world today and I think, what is he seeing now? He looks out at our world and his heart is broken again. In this day, in Genesis 6-5 being recorded, man's heart was so far from him that his next, the next verse tells us that he was sorry that he made man and that it, he... He he was grieved in his heart. (laughs) Thankfully for all of mankind that followed this, in Genesis 6-8, we're told that Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. So happy that Noah found grace in the eyes of our God and Father. When we look at the Genesis account of the Flood, we see God destroying the world. Remember we talked about the Amalekites, and how hard it is the idea of wiping out a whole people. Well, it wasn't the first time. He wiped out everybody, except for eight souls, and the animals that He used to repopulate the world. And if we're not careful, what we hear and see in this this message, of this text, I should say, is that God destroyed the world. No. That is true, but no, that's not the message. He saved the world through eight souls. That picture of baptism, the cleansing away of sin, that that which was redeemable will be, and that man might thrive. And yet man continues to throw away that opportunity and does over and over again because her heart is far from him. So, we must strive to be pure in heart. Jesus declares in Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God wants our hearts because only by having a pure heart may we see Him and be with Him eternally in heaven. With such a stake, it's important to ask, how do we ensure that my heart belongs to God? That it is pure? Well, it's a total commitment. It's a total commitment. It involves our heart, Our soul, our mind, our strength. There's nothing that we're supposed to hold back from God. It all belongs to Him. We are stewards of that which God allows us to use. To the very essence of our soul and every physical thing we have. It belongs to Him. When we give back a portion of what God has blessed us with, We are honoring that we know it all belongs to Him anyway. We make the mistake sometimes, as human beings, of saying, God owns my Sunday morning, perhaps Wednesday evening. He owns the time before my meal where I thank Him meagerly for this little food that I have, as if that is the substance of my communication with Him. That's not God's design for us. We were purchased at a price. Our life is not our own. It belongs to Him. We have nothing that we can say, yes, I understand, God gets this, but this is mine. Nothing held back. Everything is His. It's a total commitment. When asked by a Pharisee which is the great commandment of the law, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. In our text, He adds, when a, when a scribe asks Him the same question, He adds, and all your strength. I don't know why the different instances of this conversation that Jesus had is, is different. I don't know. But in essence, it's still the same. The key word is all. No part left out or kept away from Him. When Jesus made this answer, He was quoting from the passage that was familiar to His hearers in Deuteronomy 6, 4, 9. It says this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command to you shall be in your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hands and they shall be as frontless before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Eighteen years of age. April 1986. I obeyed the gospel. The family who introduced the faith to me. I spent a lot of time in their home. And the mom, who has since passed, I walked in, and at her kitchen, above her sink, were four-by-six cards, blue and red and white and green and... And they had scriptures that she had scrawled with her hand and put them up. And I went in the bathroom, and the mirror had it like a frame, scriptures that she had put around. And I discovered they were in her bedroom, and they were in the living room. She had the Word of God everywhere. She had written it down and put it up so that she'd be reminded, this is what she learned from reading her Bible, to put God's Word in front of her at all times. We have practiced that in our house, but sadly not nearly as well as she did. I am a big fan of memorizing Scripture, putting it here. When I was a young man and I worked 60 hours a week at a lumber mill, I would have the responsibility every three weeks to have a message in our congregation. I didn't have a lot of time to study for my lesson. So I would pick three or four verses that went together and I'd memorize them and think about them all week long so that by Friday I could start to put together the lesson that I needed to give. If you have not memorized Scripture, Give it a try. It's worth it. It's putting it here. Well, it's putting it here. <laughs> in the heart. So it is a, giving God your heart is a total commitment, mind, soul, and strength, as well as every waking hour. None of it belongs to you. It all belongs to Him. God tells the Israelites of old to teach His laws diligently to the children. And the wise King Solomon reinforces this when he says in Proverbs 26... 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I have extra comments on that, but for, for time I'm going to let that slide, and maybe we talk about it some other time. But I will tell you that that's how important the word is day by day in the life of every human being from their infancy on. Giving God our entire heart requires that we train it. It takes training. It takes training to transform our minds by the Holy Spirit. Solomon directly requests, "My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways." Proverbs twenty three twenty six. When he gives, when we give our hearts to God, we will look to Him and be faithful servants. Excuse me, we will look to Him and to His faithful servants for an example of how we serve Him. To give God our hearts is to learn His ways and do them. If we will do this, there's a promise. Your hearts will be changed. You will start out, perhaps, at wherever you are today, struggling against whatever it is that is difficult for you in your walk with God. And if all you're striving to do is be obedient... You will do well, but you will fail. Because you may not maintain that on your own. You must give God your heart and let Him rule in your heart. And then those things which are difficult will come to be natural because you agree with God. You understand that you are His. And it will all start to make so much more sense in your day-to-day lives. Our next point is that we have to trust God with our whole hearts. To give your hearts away requires utmost trust. Our closest relationships are broken until we treat, trust each other enough to give our whole hearts to the relationship. Nothing held back. That is marriage. Husbands and wives, you hold back part of your heart, that marriage fails. Your marriage is a total commitment to one another. It's hard. All too often, loved ones and those who we have depended on have broken our trust. Trust is difficult to give once you have experienced its loss. There's a young man in my life right now. His parents were drug addicts, are drug addicts. He has never experienced the love of a father the way he ought to. When you try to introduce God, the father, to somebody whose life has been a reflection of a poor father in their life. And by the way, no matter how well we do, we're poor fathers. Very, We're, we, we're, the, we're not the example. We're following the example. And we oftentimes make mistakes. But this is cataclysmic failure by a father. A father who has abused his children. That is a story all too often told in our world today. And you tell them to trust God, who is their father, and they recoil because father has never been a word that they could trust. It is much to overcome. But God has never broken his trust with us, and he deserves our total trust. Even when he was grieved for creating man and destroyed the world by the great flood, he still sought to save us from sin, and did so through Noah and his family. Paul tells us, "For when we were without, when we were without, I'm gonna try this again. For when we were, I can't do it. These words aren't gonna work out in order with me. Let's see how it works. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly." And he says, continuing in. Uh, Romans 5, verse 8. That was verse 6. He says in verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Faithful and true. No matter what we do, He is faithful and true. Even if no one else ever deserves our trust, God does. He loves us and He has given His Son to die on the cross for our sins. He deserves that we trust Him and give Him our hearts. As we prepare to close this morning, I want to share Proverbs 3, 5-9. through 9. And I want, you to, I want to ask you to give this great consideration. In fact, Proverbs 3, 5-9. through 9. I'm going to write this on the board for you. If you take nothing else home from this message this week, I want you to take this verse home and read it. And read it tomorrow. Read it the next day. Read it several times. Meditate on this passage this week, please. This is what Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 5-9. through 9. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear Yahweh, and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor Yahweh with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Nothing held back. It all belongs to Him. Honor Him with these things. God only wants for us to draw near to Him. It's no different from an earthly father who's doing his job. We want, as fathers, our children to show us affection. And even when our children are adults, we want this. When we are eager to have them reach out and tell us about their current events. What's going on in your life, son? What's going on in your life, my daughter? How can I help you get past the hard things you're dealing with? We want them to ask us our counsel, we want them to ask counsel of us when they're in trouble. We want them to ask us counsel early and often so that we might spare them difficult times. I've described our Father in Heaven just as neatly. This is what He wants. He wants to draw near to us, and He wants us to draw near to Him with all our hearts, with everything we are, and with everything we have. Life will sometimes be hard. It just is. But it is much easier when we put our trust in Him and give Him our hearts. So this morning, if we have not yet, let us give God our hearts today.